Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Hello everyone, welcome to the Land of Plenty. It's a panel session of the Sydney Writers' Festival. My name's Philip Clark, and I present a national ABC radio show called Nightlife, which is on late if you're ever up for it. Uh, anyway, we have a lot of interesting discussions. First off, I'd like to acknowledge that we gather this morning on land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Uh, they're the traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Australians profess to love their sunburned country, but we aren't doing a very good job of looking after it. Almost everywhere we look, the natural resources of our country are in peril, savaged by unsustainable land practices and lack of regard for animal habitat. Frankly, it threatens to destroy us. Some examples. When I spoke not so long ago to Charlie Veron, the great scientist who named and catalogued most of the corals of the Great Barrier Reef in our lifetime, he felt it was doomed by pollution and warming temperatures. One of Australia's most loved and iconic creatures, the koala, is on the best available scientific evidence on a path to extinction. The Murray-Darling Basin, poisoned by salinity and ravaged by overextraction of water, is headed towards a seemingly inevitable disaster, human and ecological, if it's not already there. In the seas around our island continent, all manner of creatures continue to deplete at alarming rates. It's not as though we don't know what to do about it. We ignore traditional management practice that has sustained the land for millennia. We allow governments to ignore scientific advice. And we comfort ourselves with, oh well, we saved the whales, didn't we? Let me introduce our panel. Rebecca Giggs is a Perth-based writer, has written a remarkable book called Fathoms. It's an astonishing book about whales, but it's a profound insight into our relationship with animals everywhere. Victor Stephenson is a Tagalaka descendant from far north Queensland. Victor is an indigenous fire practitioner and his book Fire Country is a powerful examination of how the revival of cultural burning practice and improved reading of country could help to restore our land. Bruce Pascoe is a Ewan, Bunurong and Tasmanian man and he's written a great number of books, including the perennial bestseller, Dark Emu. He's the recipient of the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. And Richard Beasley is a senior counsel at the New South Wales Bar. In 2018-19, he was senior counsel assisting the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission. He's the author of five works of fiction, including Hell Has Harbour Views. The report of the Royal Commission is currently gathering dust, but it should not be, and it should be acted upon. Welcome to you all. Rebecca, first up, I said we'd save the whales and we all feel good about it, have we? <laughs> well, I'm a child of the 1980s, so I have the very vivid memory of those bumper stickers you used to see that said, save the whales on, on the back of cars. And I grew up believing that this was the truth, that we, we had done very well to kind of, as a global environmental citizenry, restrain ourselves from the over-exploitation of whale populations. And it's true to say that uh, the big species like the humpbacks and the sperm whales 
have recovered since uh, the peak of commercial whaling. On the east coast of Australia, the humpbacks are experiencing a baby boom at the moment. And the sperm whale, which is the, the big blocky headed whale you sometimes see on the front cover of Moby Dick, they've recently been pulled off the red list of endangered species. But at the same time, the world in which whales live has drastically changed over the course of my lifetime. The oceans are different sonically, they're different chemically, they're different in terms of the amount of litter and pollution that they've absorbed from agrochemicals and atmospheric chemicals. And so the whales of the world today live in a totally different uh, environmental context. And I think, you know, part of the project of Fathoms as a book was not just to look at how many whales do we have in the sea, but how are their lives in the wild changed by living in the lee of human activity? Yes, exactly. I was, just, I was, I was intrigued to read in your book that there are, we think we know about whales and we've named them all, but we haven't. We know so little about the ocean that there are whales that live in the ocean that we don't know anything about. We don't even have a name for some of them. This is true. Uh, we know some whales by fragments of bone that have washed up, some on the coast of New Zealand, but we've never seen their entire body. You know, we've never seen them alive. Last, in, in 2016, there was a discovery of an entirely new species of whale, no name for it yet, before then utterly unknown to science. Um, and it happened because uh, there was some DNA analysis done on a whale skeleton that had been hanging in an Alaskan gymnasium in a high school. It was the basketball team's mascot, this whale skeleton. Turns out to be an animal that we'd never labelled and we'd, we'd never met before. When did you first meet a whale? You, uh, you first meet a whale in Perth, don't you? It's not, it's, not, yeah. it's not to be with us for very, or well, it wasn't to be with us for very long. Tell me about your emotions on seeing that, that creature die. A few years ago, I, I helped out at a whale beaching not far from my home in Perth on Noongar Wadja country. Um, this yearling humpback had stranded. So yearling's not a, a full-grown humpback. It was about 12 metres long. And it was on a sand spit initially, and we got it back out, but it stranded further higher up the beach. Um, and there was a kind of macabre carnival atmosphere on the beach that day because lots of people came down and people bought their children, they bought their dogs, and they were struck by the wonder of encountering this creature that really, you know, lives out in the deep, the deep oceans and we rarely see actually off the, the coast of Perth because they tend to stay on the other side of Rottnest Island. Um, and yet it was suffering and there were all these ethical questions about whether it should be euthanised um, or if it should be allowed to decline as nature would will it. Um, I got talking to lots of people on the beach about their idea of why Wales Beach. Lots of different theories. Some people thought that it was sick or it might have been chased by predators. Somebody said to me perhaps it's consumed plastic. One guy said perhaps whale beachings are triggered by falling stars and there'd been a, a sort of comet across uh, uh, Rottnest about a week beforehand. Um, so that's really where the book begins, in this place of, um, you know, interest in the, the boundary between mystery and science, the explanation for natural events, um, and it becomes much more about the way in which our ordinary everyday lives connect to the world of wildlife that's found in very remote places. You later see a whale, or well, you meet a whale eye to eye, it's at sea, on a whale watching tour. Mm. 
and it catches you by surprise, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think like many people, I was uh, excited to get this moment of coming eye to eye with the animal and kind of being beheld by it and feeling in some way significant against the backdrop of the natural world. Um, and in this case, you know, that the whale watching boat was still in the middle of the ocean and a mother humpback brought her calf right up to the edge and she sort of rotated under the water, barely moving underneath this lip of, of water. Um, and, and, you know, her eye kind of clicked past um, and it was sort of terrifying as well as wonderful in the sense that you realise you're kind of very fragile and small and very far from where you should be probably. But later I asked scientists about whale vision. It turns out whales have, or humpback whales at least, have, have actually very poor vision um, and would not have, would not have seen <laughs> would me. Would not have registered you, Rebecca. Not at all. No, no, it was a very narcissistic moment for me, right? A very sort of self-involved moment because I wanted to be significant to the animal. This is a thing which you, trust, you, you, you touch on in your book a lot, which I, I found very, very insightful. That, that is your meditation on the, na on the way we relate to animals. In whales, and whales are no different. On the whale watching tour, you have the guide calling out to the whale, whaley, whaley, where are you? We, we, as humans, we want to import human characteristics into animals. And you wonder whether that's actually good for animals at all. Mm. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we probably enchanted by whale song. We like to think that, you know, we listen we listen to the voices of whales and everyone has that sort of new agey kind of moment. But uh, I mean, who's to say that the voices of humans don't really irritate whales when we're calling out across across the ocean? Um, yeah, the question of, you know, how much personality we import into animals is an interesting one. I, I mean, it's sort of an ethnocentric question as well. If we come from the cultural West, then there's a very clear divide between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. And we might seek to kind of like anthropomorphize animals, give them human traits and give them values that actually come from human societies. But all ideas of nature come full of cultural information. Um, and in other cultures, in the indigenous cultures in Australia, that, um, you know, animals are, it's a spectrum, maybe family, maybe kin as well. Um, so, yeah, for, for the book, I was interested in that idea of what animals we give a privileged place in our stories about the environment. Um, and whales are an amazing kind of Trojan horse for that conversation because we do elevate them to this big charismatic place um, uh, and sometimes it's at the cost of noticing much more subtler gradations in the marine environment and in other organisms that are you know really important mm. as well. Tell me something astonishing about the blue whale apart from the fact that it's the biggest. You can hear a blue whale's heart three kilometres away underwater it's that loud sounds like a great big kind of temple drum you know this, this huge heart uh, and they exhale water vapour. They, you know, the blue whale like 30 metres long. And when they exhale water vapour, um, rainbows can form because they're ejecting such a high cloud of, of warmer air into the air. Um, so, yeah, largest animal on the face of the planet and, and sort of deeply mysterious as yeah, well. Yeah, that has ever lived. Yeah. All right. Bruce Pascoe, you... You, in your book, uh, Loving Country, with, uh, with Vicky Shukaroglu, 
talk about the, the whale stories in Aboriginal Australia, particularly around Margaret River. The one thing that, that you point out, which is, is that whale stories tend to be quite the same across the country. In other words, the same stories about the whales are being told um, across the country. Tell me about that. Uh, there's a lot of different um, whale stories, but they often have uh, a central element which uh, is in common. And, um, you know, there's some fundamental background to all this, the, the talk about us and animals. And, you know, uh, the major religions of the world believe that man shall have dominion over the earth, and they say that, and they mean man. Um, whereas Aboriginal people believe the earth has dominion over us. And it, it's not just a cute saying, it's a fundamental change in philosophy. Um, but in relation to the whale, Aboriginal people knew for thousands of years before um, Europeans did that the, the whale had once been a land animal. And the, um, you know, the fundamental story of most um, Aboriginal groups that I've spoken to is that the rainbow serpent and the whale set, uh, divided the world between them. The rainbow serpent to look after the land, the whale to look after the oceans. But the instruction to the, to the whale was you've got to go out to sea, but periodically you have to bring yourself back to the earth and regurgitate your law. And, you know, whether that's a reference to ambergris or uh, what it is, I don't know. But there are underwater burials of whales indicating that whales have been bringing themselves back to the earth for thousands of years and dying en masse. It's part of the story that is told in Margaret River, told at Harvey Bay, uh, places all around the country, told in Tasmania. Um, so that relationship with the whale is very, very old. And it's not just about whales, it's about people as well, because the whale has had this association with people down at Margaret River. When the whale, which had been a land mammal, went into the ocean, the people stood on the headland and were wailing because, pardon the pun, were, because the, um, they were worried about, the, uh, worried about their friend going into the ocean. What are you going to eat? The whale dived down, picked up a, a whole lot of seagrass and rotated like that to show the people that it could eat in the ocean. Um, you know, really, really graphic a relationship between them. There's a, a lot more to those stories. Um, you know, I could talk about it for hours, but people are attracted to whales, you know, like that big eye. Um, you know, and we, we tend to look at animals and want to be friends with them. And, but I think we'll hear with the Murray-Darling Basin, as soon as a, you know, a capitalist wants to be your friend, you're in awful trouble. Um, <laughs> And that, that's why I'm, I'm so in love with the culture of my own people, Ewan people on the South Coast, uh, because that story is told in Gulaga Mountain about whales, sharks and dolphins and um, dugong. Um, and it's a story of love, love for country, love for animals, love for people. Um, and... 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of begging Australia to pay real attention to it, not to see it as a children's story, not to see it as something cute and warm and fuzzy that we can um, talk about over our coffees, but something fundamental to our lives because it's fundamental to the earth. And I've veered away from your question no, no, entirely. No, no, Bruce, it leads, it leads to a question I wanted to ask you, which is that we, we are being alerted through dark, you know, dark emu, of course, Bill Gamage's great book, The, the Greatest Estate on Earth and others, uh, about the, when white people arrived here, the land was being managed. It, it wasn't what most people had assumed. And in my generation, we grew up with the idea that I think Aboriginal people were wandering around opportunistically trying to get something to eat as best they could, but it was essentially a wild, untamed place and the bush was, was, uh, was bush, bush everywhere. Of course, the, the early settlers when they arrived didn't see that. They saw something completely different actually at the time and painted and wrote and, and drew it. And yet seemingly we've sort of forgotten this. You make a, a lovely reference in your book to in 1849 when Sturt, the explorer, uh, is out uh, near Lake Eyre and comes across a group of Aboriginal people who offer him some roast duck and, and cakes, which he reports were actually delicious. <laughs> were, were delicious. Mm. This doesn't sound like a foraging people doing the best they can, does it? No, well, that, those people um, had a village on the bank of that river. They were living off the fat of the land. But, you know, the, that, the flooding of that river valley where they were harvesting... Um, they didn't live there all year round. They had houses there, permanent houses. Some of them are still there. Mm. Um, but they were uh, util working with the land. If it flooded here, that's where the crop will be and we'll, we'll harvest that crop. So they fed Sturt roast duck and cake. And I, you know, when I read that in Sturt's journal, I just thought it was such an emblematic thing to say about this country. Last night... Um, uh, Julie Clark offered me a, a copy of Judith Wright's book. Now, Judith Wright's people um, eliminated Aboriginal people from the New England area. Uh, as a delivery festival, we can talk freely about Judith Wright. Her grandfather described what it was to stand up on the, uh, the bluff above the farm that he took from Aboriginal people, and he describes it in the most idyllic terms. He misunderstands how it was done, but he talks about the open areas of the plain, the beautiful copses of the forest. It's described in idyllic terms. It could be England. You know, it's called New England, that area, but it is so beautiful, so productive. He then, a few months later, talks about the turbidity of the water caused by cattle and sheep. He talks about the denudation of the grassland, which has become barren. A few months. You know, we keep on saying Australia rode on the sheep's back. I don't know how many times I um, heard that when I was going through school. Well, the bloody sheep rode on our back and is still riding on our back. Beautiful to eat, lovely little cuddly animal as a lamb. You know, people say we shouldn't eat uh, kangaroos, but I say, well, you shouldn't eat lambs either because they're beautiful. I mean, I eat, I'm a meat eater. Um, we, if you want to eat meat, then you've got to be responsible for the animal that you take. And I, I don't think we are in this country, but if we wanted to change our dietary habits, the soft-footed kangaroo is the one we should be eating and getting rid of the, the hard-hoofed sheep. 
because their teeth can take a plant right down beyond its basal leaves and kill it like that, whereas the kangaroo can't do that. Its dentition is completely different. Um, we are eating the wrong animals. We are growing the wrong crops. We've completely misunderstood the land. And Victor will tell you later on that part of that beautiful management, um, there were uh, many tools involved, but one of them was fire. Mm. And now because of the way Europeans have managed the land, we're terrified of fire. Whereas our people never had... The, the words we have for fire are so loving. The relationship was a peaceful relationship. So um, the words are like win, you know, which is I uh, for fire, sparkling I. You know, it's not a terrifying term at all. Whereas, you know, all of our descriptions of fire, you know, have that feeling of Holocaust in them of devastation, mm, mm. and we're now afraid of it. Yeah. When uh, white people, when they came here, saw what was being done, if we'd taken more note of it, I mean, I know this is hypothetical, but if we'd taken more note of it, what would Australia look like today? Or could it look like today, do you think? I don't think much would have changed because the people who came here were Europeans. And um, I'm writing an, another book called The European Mind because I've I'm trying to answer that question because there was something happened to humans when the combination of Christianity and capitalism got rolling and it did things to people. That's when, you know, the Chinese had been going around in boats for a long time and then going back to China, trading with Aboriginal people around the world and certainly trading with Australian Aboriginal people and taking... Aboriginal people back to China and vice versa. And, and the, you know, the Aboriginal people would go to China and come back with Chinese wives. And, um, you know, it was a, a trading social relationship, whereas the European never, ever had that um, intention. The Papal Bull of uh, 1497 uh, says that if, uh, called the Doctrine of Discovery, if Europeans came across a land where the people didn't uh, recognise Jesus Christ, um, then uh, Europeans were allowed to take their land and if they resisted, kill them. That's a papal bull. That's a Christian document. Um, you know, that's, that's where the, the difference is. Mm, and, mm. It would, you know, the French had a boatload of um, writers and painters and uh, botanists landed in Tasmania, the relationship with Aboriginal people there was completely different. Um, you know, the, the boatload of uh, French um, spent a week in um, Bruny Island. They ate, they sang, they danced, the French left. You know, but um, the next French ship was full of land grabbers and uh, harpoonists and, you know, the, the relationship was mm. economic. Yeah. And there's something fundamental about that combination of Christianity and capitalism, which has, has brought the earth to the edge of destruction. Yeah. You'd, let's talk about fire because it's all we talked about last summer and it seemingly goes around in an endless cycle. The bushfire season, we call it, as though, well, it is. It's something we fear that white people have always feared fire, but 
Indigenous people, Aboriginal people, do not seem to have feared fire, but rather used it. Victor Stephenson spent a good part of his life and has written a wonderful book called Fire Country, which talks about Indigenous burning practices. Victor, do Aboriginal people fear fire or do they use it? What, what's the relationship with fire? Because I, I know white people's relationship with fire, which is called fear. Yeah, well, that fear, not just with fire. The fear is um, among many things. It's fear of each other too. It's fear of um, losing their job. If Aboriginal people rise up and try and get involved in the solutions, there's so many levels of fear that even goes into cultural heritage on lands, on private properties and all sort of things, you know, even when native titles started, you know, which is started fear in people. Even when Aboriginal people first got out of the mission and started to move into town, people had fear their houses are going to go down, the prices of the houses. I mean, fear, that's something that's driven in this society and it's something that is um, no good, you know, because the fire is not scary. It's, they made it like that. And they make it like that, not just with the fear of fire, but with the way they've been managing the land. It all relates back to the very first stepping stones when the settlement came to this country. And if they would have listened and um, do the right thing and, and say, well, how do we live on your country? And how do we actually um, do things the right way, your way on your land? Then we'd be in a different situation. And so there's a big turning point now to turn that fear yep. into the positive, the way that we see fire. And that is something that, is, that is belongs to the country, something that is used to, um, to make country healthy. It's about making food for the landscape. It's about dance. It's about keeping cooking food. It's, it's a part of story and culture and everything. It's more than just a tool. And um, it's something that is fundamentally part of culture. And today, that's this in our modern society, the mm. the fire culture in this country is not uh, the way no, it should have been. We, it was think, right think, back then, which is really is based on our relationship with the landscape. I think we've realised we've got it wrong somehow. Exactly. T tell me, tell me about indigenous fire practice. I'm really curious about this. Tell me what, how you would approach. Because if I said. <laughs> if I broadcast, say, look, you know, there are people going out to the National Park lighting fires. This is about the worst possible thing that, that of, you know, example of human behaviour that you could do. Tell me what, what Indigenous fire practice is. What, give me an example of mm. how you burn country. Well, it's about reading country and it's about understanding where it goes in the right place, in the right ecosystem. It's also about understanding where it doesn't belong to. So it's about regulating uh, element, natural element in a way that is, is, um, that is a part of balance. Hmm. And when we apply a fire to country, it's about an action, which in fire country you know as praction, that is something that is um, what you do with that action and applying fire is good for the birds, it's good for the soil, organic matter, the seeds, it's good for the grasses, it's good for the trees, it's good for all the animals, and it's good for people and keeping us safe. It's good for the water because it don't go and burn the no-fire country. And so all those benefits come from one action. And that is the key to sustainability and why people have been able to live on the land for thousands of years sustainably. But when we don't, when we do an action that is 
just for our own self and it doesn't, it's not good for the water or it's not good for the animals, then we become a practice that is um, not in tune or not in sync with natural law. And so that is really defined with every practice we do. And so fire sits in that fine groove and the actions of Aboriginal practice sits on that really fine groove that's taken thousands of years to find that. And at the end result, what it means is that people are land and people are part of landscape. And fundamentally, that's inevitably, that's where we've got to go again. Um, might not be the right, right back to way how old people did in the old country, but, but um, certainly we've got to go back that way in, in the modern sense that's going to be looking at how we are more sustainable in that same formula and philosophy within agriculture, within all sort of actions and how we apply our action to landscape. So, so you, mm. you would say as an Indigenous fire practitioner, what we ought to be doing is, is burning country often mm. in, 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 in small amounts, but only at times when the country needs to be burnt or should be burnt. That's right. It, does a, it tells you. So that's listening to the landscape. That's what and you call reading the country. It's called reading the country, yeah. And it's the language. Like you talk about the whales, you know, and the language coming from the whales. The language comes from everything, you know. Hmm. And even in the trees and even in what you see, it's not what you hear, it's what you see, it's what you smell, you know, and it's what you feel too inside. Language is so important and that's a, that's a real connected skill that, um, that is crucial to um, understanding our surroundings and ultimately understanding who we are uh, as people as well, hum humanity. Mm. Not just for Aboriginal people and their own identities too that are um, struggling and, and so forth. So it's so important that language because it's talking to us continuously. And sometimes it'll yell, yell at us, you know, scream, you know, like them big fires or big rain or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's all language to listen. So when we look at the fire, it's like, all right, it's time rain come, for example, big rain come and all the rivers flow. All right, we're thinking straight away, oh, it's time to burn this sort of country. We go for the storm-burned countries with these type of soils and these type of rocks. And, and so, all right, we wait now. Then we'll go out and have a look and you'll see the grasses and then they'll tell you the right curing and grasses and colours and, and that all lines up. Everything lines up to allow that. And so this country that don't want fire at that time will be more green. And he'll go, okay, well, you can have your fire now, but I'm going to stay a little bit greener. And then this other mob of animals will say, oh, well, we want to breed at this time, so we'll make our babies born now so that when the fire comes, finished, we're finished. Everything it plays allowance and connects with each other to allow that, to um, say, well, you need that, well, I'll do this so you can have that at the right time. And then when you finish, you're not going to have my turn then at the right time. And it's all based on the right science of like heat and um, all those reactions that all come together to create life. Mm. And one diversity. Of the, one of the other great, mm. well, the other great stories in your book is that it's this. I, I don't know what I took from it was this sense of connectedness, which mm. as a young bloke you're <laughs> like you're all over the place, <laughs> like a lot of young blokes are, yeah. and <laughs> and and you, you don't know what you're doing, quite frankly, but <laughs> like a lot of young blokes. But you but but you you get in with 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 your people, with a group of elders who, and they agreed to. They agree to take you, and, and, and it's like a revelation to you because you suddenly, 
have that sense of deep connection, not just with your people, but also with them you are able to read the land as well. And that sense of connection, but to me it's that sense of knowledge too. And I, I wonder, it's been passed to you, but I wonder whether we're in danger of losing a lot of that too. Well, that was the case right from the beginning, you know. I mean, going back for Takalak, you know, like in our own areas there for my grandmother and my mother's families, you know, there was a big gold mine there, you know, and, and that this knowledge become lost from that yeah. simple thing. So some clans were some more, you know, had knowledge and some lost knowledge depending on what happened, you know, in different places, you know. Hmm. So that the alarm bells for losing knowledge has started right when they started taking people from the landscape. And, you know, right back then, like when I first started doing the work with the old people um, in 91, um, you know, it was about recording knowledge. But it wasn't about that. It was about me learning for myself. And it just panned into the fact where I realised that, hey, these fellas not learning. Oh, hey, even um, kids growing up in the community, they're not picking this up. And then I look outside of that into the other areas of Australia and I realise that, hey, it's actually gone in these areas. And then I realise how um, devastating that is going to be. And not only from my realisation, but I was told by the elders that now have passed that, boy, you're going to get in big trouble, you know. Them fellas are going to find it hard. And then another old lady tell me, it's not a lucky country anymore, you know. It was a lucky country, and when we are gone, we're finished. No more lucky country. Yeah, yeah. And that really is something that really hit me, you know, back when I was only 18, 19. And then I was like, man, how are we going to do, what are we going to do about this, you know? So then it came around about, you know, the importance of demonstrating that knowledge and recording that knowledge. Yeah. But recording was like archiving. I'm like, nah, we don't need to do that. What we need to do is get this knowledge and then plant it back into the people yeah. and put it back into the young ones and, and then from there share it with the broader community to show its values and, and then show how that then helps to evolve our modern culture in Australia together by also maintaining the, um, the Aboriginal culture for people as well at the same time, respecting people and respecting place and benefiting from that as a whole. Yeah, exactly. Mm. If you wanted a bigger example of greed and corruption and bloody-mindedness and bastardry and the uselessness of politics to solve anything, you couldn't go much further than the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, Richard Beasley's book, uh, Down the Drain, which it's got a lot of four-letter words in it, I must say. So, dead in the water. Know, dead in the water. Sorry, <laughs> dead in the water. It is down the drain. But it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a book which is full of anger about what's happened in the Murray-Darling. Richard, you were senior counsel on the South Australian Royal Commission. What's the most astonishing thing you discovered about the management of the Murray-Darling Basin? Uh, that it's straight out unlawful. Um, Australia, white Australians have um, done a really good job of wrecking the environment of southeastern Australia. The Murray-Darling Basin is twice the size of France, southern Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, ACT, that part of South Australia down to the Coorong. It's got attention to it because it's got 60% of Australia's farms and some really big irrigation and really big mining, all of which requires a lot of water. And yet it's got some of our most important environmental treasures, 16 wetlands that are 
internationally listed uh, that we have treaty obligations about. And white people are, are doing a great job of destroying those wetlands. And it got so bad that even John Howard thought he had to do something about it. So <laughs> in 2007, he did the right thing. He said to the states who have the power over water, there's no constitutional power in the federal government for water. He said, look, you've, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but you states have been handing out water licenses like confetti. Um, our rivers are long, but they don't have much water in them. And we've got to stop this. We have to take some of the water back that's being used for consumptive uses like big irrigation and mining and give it back to the environment or we threaten the environment of this whole enormous area and we're going to kill um, our wetlands. So he had enacted in the dying days of his government the Water Act, which is our most important environmental law. He, he had to use the foreign affairs power and our treaty obligations to make it constitutionally valid because the states, one of the states, Victoria, wouldn't refer water powers to him. So that was the option he had. And it's a, it's a wonderful piece of legislation and it's, it's essentially at its core based on the Aboriginal Basin Plan, which, which is this. You can take some water, but take only what you need and don't be greedy. Don't take so much that you ruin the environment, respect the environment. That's what it's, what's at the Basin Plan heart. It had another remarkable thing about it, especially for politicians. They said, the, the way we're going to approach this as to how much water the Commonwealth's going to acquire to give back to the environment won't be based on what the National Party wants <laughs> or an irrigation lobbyist wants or even the Greens want. It'll be based on one thing only, best available scientific knowledge. You may not find another environmental law in the world where scientists or science have been given the, the power to resolve what is a science question. So a fantastic start in 2007. Since then, as Brett Walker found in his Royal Commission, maladministration, gross negligence, incomprehensible decision-making. Um, what happened was that lobbyists went to town, put pressure on all the decision-makers, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and we've ended up with our taxpayers' money, $13 billion of money being put into a plan that is unlawful, that won't save the environment, that will have very little environmental benefits, that is a figure to be returned to the environment that is not a science-based figure, but is a political fix. Yeah. We've even got reports from the CSIRO saying this won't work, it's not enough water back to the environment. Um, when the Basin Authority didn't like that, they commissioned the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the federal authority in charge of this, they commissioned the CSIRO to do another report saying, look, if we only return this amount of water that we want to to the environment, how good will it be for the environment? They didn't like the report they got from the CSIRO because the CSIRO said it won't do very much, it won't hit the ecological targets and flow events you need. And management from the Basin Authority, a federal body, put pressure on our leading scientific federal body, the CSIRO, to change the words of that report in an utterly disgraceful way. And this is all based on sworn evidence, yeah, I yeah, should exactly. say. Yeah. Um, and the pressure was so, the scientists at CSIRO refused to change their report. It was actually the words to make this plan look better for the environment that it was, was changed by management 
And the threat was that the Murray-Darling Basin Authority may not pay the CSIRO for this report. In other words, you've got one federal body threatening another that we won't pay you unless, to use the words of a scientist that worked on this report, you engage in scientific censorship. Um, CSIRO also told the Basin Authority, look, it's going to get, as a matter of certainty, get hotter and drier in Australia. You have to factor in climate change projections into how much water the environment needs. Basin Authority thought, no way, we're not going to do that because that'll mean more water coming off big irrigation, including the big cotton farms in the north. We're not going to do that. The CSIRO said, if you don't do that, it's, quote, scientifically indefensible, close quote. And yet the Basin Authority, with our money, just went like that to the CSIRO. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, in simple terms, that's what's happened. It is. It, the Water Act says... A determination of the amount of water you can take from the Murray-Darling must be based on the best scientific evidence available. The Murray-Darling Basin sought such evidence. When it wasn't convenient, they just put it in the rubbish tin. Well, the, the answer they originally got, the scientific answer, was you're going you're to need to acquire about twice the amount of water mm. that is in the basin plan. So to save the basin, we need on a yearly average somewhere between, say, 10 and 14 Sydney harbours of water, 500 billion litres on average a year to go back to the environment to save it. That's what the science tells us. We've got a basin plan that only has, on average, four uh, Sydney harbours of water being returned to the environment. You ought to be angry about it because it's on its way to death, isn't it? Climate change is only going to make it worse. For and on the, current plan, on the current plan, the basin is, 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 is well, doomed. Uh, look, I'm a lawyer, not a scientist, so I just rely on what a but that's what the science, high, but that's what the that's scientists what they're telling that's me. That's what the scientists say. The Coorong's in a terrible time. I know it rained this year. That's, that's the weather. The long-term climactic trend mm. is hotter and drier. For every one degree, it, goes, it gets hotter on a daily average in the basin. We're going to lose 15% of runoff into our already hydrologically feeble rivers. So a two degree rise, is th that's a catastrophe. Mm. That will mean the death of the Coorong, the death of, of many of our precious wetlands. So the fact that rain this year, it, it, if, if, if water goes out to a floodplain and gets down the Darling River, that's fantastic. But if it goes out to a floodplain and waters dead trees, that doesn't help anything. In your book, you say, you, put, you have a chapter entitled My Basin Plan, which, look, it's devilishly complicated, not his plan, but because there are federal and state governments and there are local councils and there are all sorts of interests on the river, as, as, as we know. In simple terms, what, would you, what do you think should happen? Um, I think the first thing I said was that I'd return all the water to the Aboriginal nations in the basin. Give it back to because them. Because white people have done such a bad job with it. Um, that's... That's not going to happen, um, and it, it's not even what the Aboriginal nations in the Murray-Darling Basin are asking for. They're asking for what they call a cultural flow. They're asking, give us some of our water. Um, I don't want to give a legal lecture, but obviously people will be aware of, of native title rights, but it's over land. Aboriginal people have never been given native title rights over water. I don't know. And they've asked for a cultural flow, um, and they've done some science about what they would need. And by cultural flow, this, it, the, the Aboriginal nations don't just mean that for environmental purposes, but also for their own economic purposes. Um, that's never been allocated to them. I think it's unlikely that all the water is going to be given back to a a Aboriginal people. I think my second 
plea would be to take up the recommendations of Brett Walker and his Royal Commission report that's somewhere in the federal Keith Pitts office gathering dust, um, and that is you've got, a, you've got a, a Water Act that requires something to be done according to science, do it according to science or change the law, but at least be honest and act lawfully. If it's too much to act lawfully, if it's too much to give water, buy water and restore our environment, then be honest that you're not gonna do that, that you're gonna prefer the interests of cotton growers, but be honest about that and change the law. But while it is, this is unlawful. No doubt some of you are thinking, given I'm saying it's unlawful, why isn't something done about it? The difficulty with that is that the Water Act is obviously Commonwealth legislation, but the basin plan that's meant to be based on science and it isn't, is also Commonwealth legislation. There's very few options for challenging in a court a piece of Commonwealth legislation about the only one... Even though be, it's illegal? Even though it's illegal, about the only one would be that it's unconstitutional because it's not enough water for Australia to fulfil our international mm. treaty obligations under the Ramsar Wetlands Treaty or the Biodiversity Treaty or the Climate Change Convention, etc. That would be one avenue. My preference is this for not to go to court. My preference is for Canberra, politicians and bureaucrats to actually just act lawfully and do the right thing mm. by the environment. All right, look, we've got some questions coming. Read his book, it will make you very angry, uh, I promise, uh, but it needs to be read. Look, we've got some questions coming up. Just finally, before we, before we go to the questions, uh, our, our way forward, I mean, Rebecca, with animals and our relationship to animals, why don't we just leave them alone? Or what do you think should happen? Uh, look, I, I think that there is, there's certainly, um, there's hope for our relationship with the natural world. I think the way through the crises that we face today it comes in part from listening and taking the time to kind of engage with the nuance of the knowledge that's coming through in some of the books written by the other authors I'm sharing a stage with today. Um, but I think it also comes through making yourself useful. It's not, um, you, you don't get to be hopeful until you make yourself useful in some small way. Um, and I, um, you know, whether, whether that's very local, um, according to your talents, your resources, your privilege, your communities. Um, and I, I do think, you know, there's some humility to be earned around our relationship with other species. We need to be engaged with the worlds of creatures that aren't just cute or charismatic or a source of great wonder. We need to be thinking more about the animals that have some kind of ecological role that are responsible for, um, you know, sustaining ecosystems at large. Um, yeah, and I, I take a lot of hope from things like the schools movements that are really bubbling up today. Those young kids, totally different leadership structure in their activism. And um, so I, I think we're, we're going to go through a real bottleneck in the coming decades, but there's a lot to be... Mm. Hopeful for now. What do you think, Bruce? Do you think can we learn to le can we learn to see the land differently, in the way that you've described? Do you think we can? Well, I, I have to think we can. Yeah. Because as soon as we uh, believe that we can't, then um, we're condemning my grandchildren yeah, to it's over to no agency in the world at all. And I think um, that no matter how bleak our view of the world is, 
we have to give our grandkids a chance because um, a lot of the things we do in uh, terms of development of so-called development of the country is like we despise our grandchildren. We, we are saying we refuse to leave the earth to you. We are so selfish, we're going to die with the earth, um, with our hands around the throat of the earth. And um, I, I think we, we have to remain positive. We have to um, remain positive about the human spirit. And in Australia, we, there is this culture um, that saw Mother Earth as central um, to the human, uh, not the other way around, that her health was our health and that we treat her like our own mother. Yes. Whatever you do to the earth, you must um, only do what you're prepared to do to your mother. And that is her health is paramount to you because that's, that's how you live. So I, I think we have to... I, I don't, politicians don't change anything. Um, they they yeah, let yeah. things ossify. And so we have to come up with the idea. If we sit back and say, oh, no, it's too hard, you know, um, you know we've, we've lost the opportunity to change the world, then that just plays into the hand of the politicians who will just tread water un until the next election and the next election and they're boiling frogs. Yeah. Um, we have to, as a, a country, we have to come up with this idea. And um, if you're talking about water and you're talking about land and you're talking about air and you're talking about whales and you don't look at how Aboriginal people saw all of those things for 120,000 years, the very oldest culture on earth, the most sustainable, if you don't consult those people, then you are the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Yes, hear to that, hear to that. We've got some time for questions. Things have been so absorbing, but um, yes, thank you. Thank you for a great discussion. I just want to pick up on the South Australian comment, and I'm going to be slightly parochial. I think you meant the comment in the terms of the Murray-Darling Basin, but in New South Wales, we have at least recognised water rights for Indigenous people awarded to the Yadal people up around Yamber on the northern rivers, covering part of the area where there's one of the few ocean-based fish traps on the beach. But to the question, so my family's got over 120 years of Indigenous recognition and advocacy, but Dark Emu was a revelation for me and the research to find out what was in plain sight from those original diaries was excellent. Last week, there was an article in the Conservation stating that there would have been more than a million Indigenous people in Australia around the time of some early days. What do you think is the pathway for long-term sustainable constitution and political recognition of Indigenous people and how do we get to a point where we're actively using 60,000 years of environmental knowledge in our future practices? Okay. Um, Bruce or Victor, do you want to take this up? Or? Well, I, I, I think we have to um, start thinking like Australians, like we belong to this country. Um, 
because we eat here, um, we drink here, we go to sleep here, um, and, but we do so as if we're still in London and we're treating the, the country like we want it to be Kent. It will never be Kent. It's Australia. And until we come to grips with that, then we're, we're doomed. Um, but you know, uh, I said it before, I think we have to consult um, the Aboriginal cultural knowledge, which this is what Victor has been trying to share with Australia. And there's been a lot of enthusiasm for it, but sometimes that enthusiasm is misplaced and people just think burning is good, burning is good, burning is good, and they, they burn a dry sclerophyll forest um, uh, when in fact they should be burning the plane, making the plane safe. You know, it, it's a more subtle argument than uh, a lot of people are prepared to hmm. accept. But we have to embrace that knowledge and it's not just, you know, good black fella, bad white fella, because if you go along that argument, then you're, you're missing a, a lot of subtlety. You know, we're humans. You know, but what has happened in this country is for 120,000 years, humans came up with a, a social contract where everybody got a house, everybody got fed, everybody took part in the culture, and when they were old, everybody was looked after. This is... This is unique. This hasn't happened anywhere else. It happened here. We all live here. This is something that the world needs. You could take it to Lebanon now and you, you could talk to people there. They'd understand that. That is what we need. We need respect, we need peace and we need love of country. Not nationalism. I saw a film about Franco last night called When at War. I'd recommend it to you because it talks about the perfidy of the human, not the wisdom of the human. And I think we have to act like loving humans and not asking for everybody to become Aboriginal, asking for everyone to become Australian and to respect that old knowledge. We're 230 years in to association with Aboriginal Australia and we've got nowhere. All we've got is murder and theft now is the time to start a real association with this culture so that all Australians say that I love this country. I want to know as much as I can about it. I want to know why Judith Wright's grandfather stood on that hill and saw uh, such beauty, such environmental grace. And within four months, he saw the water turn brown and gradually disappear and he saw the greenness disappear. Why is that so? Every Australian should ask themselves that question. They should ask their local member that question. They should ask Vic. So, yeah, if I can just add just slightly to that. Um, you know, it's one thing to just observe and to, and, to, and to say, well, this is what we need to do, but it's the how. And that's the most important part of Aboriginal knowledge is the demonstration. And the stuff that we're demonstrating on country and uh, the magic that happens, that unfolds with the reaction of the country with the right management and, and love for country and practice is, um, is based on a thousand years of experience. And so it's not talking now, it's doing. And that's what's got us to this point. 
where the fire movement for Aboriginal people has, has just come to where it is now, where communities are doing it all over the place and where the broader community is getting shared into that, whereas now we're starting to see that firework and how it helps with agricultural outcomes, how it's so important for education and how it starts to feed in even to other tech students and law students and how they all contribute. And so the bottom line is, is demonstrating Aboriginal knowledge in the modern sense, not just for managing the land and showing that and getting our people out of poverty, really important part of the process. This should be high on the list as getting our mob out of poverty and, 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 and giving them opportunities for economical mm. gain. Because what's the point if we all just stand here talking about this stuff and um, old people back home still sitting in the grass wondering, well, when are they going to come and fix our problem here, help us here with us and give us the resources to do what we need to do or get us come down and talk about these things. And so it's about that demonstration and um, that's the most important thing. Language is important and talking is important but the demonstration and the action is also just as important. Sure. Mm. Thanks, Victor. So, mm. I would like to thank all of you, Rebecca Giggs, uh, Victor Stephenson, and uh, Bruce Pascoe, and Richard Beasley, for our panel session today, Land of Plenty. Some plenty of questions, I would have thought, uh, as well as meditations on the topic as well. Thank you for coming. Enjoy the rest of your day, and please give our panel uh, your acknowledgement. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.